Welcome to Left Foot. We invite fresh conversation on business development. Now here's your host, Nicole Giantonio. Today's episode is sponsored by Estet. Estet Managed Services lowers clients' e-discovery spend, improving security and control over data. Estet makes your practice more powerful and profitable. See more at e-stet.com. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Left Foot. Today's guest is the former president of the reinsurance firm, Jen Rhee. He was also global general counsel, chairman of Jen Rhee's Lloyd's Syndicate, and chairman of their aviation interest, United States Aviation Insurance Group. In the fall of 2016, he and his partners launched their own firm focused on the insurance, reinsurance, and financial services industries, covering corporate litigation, internal investigations, governance, and regulatory compliance issues. Vokey Law Group founder and managing partner, Damon Vokey, welcome. Before we dive into the goals of the firm and specifically how the Vokey Law Group is positioning itself in the market, can you give our listeners a sense of who you are professionally and what personal strengths or habits have allowed you to be successful in your work? Sure. I graduated from the University of Michigan Law School in 1989, and I went to work at Lord Bissell and Brook in Chicago. And I ultimately became an equity partner there, focusing on commercial litigation and trial work. I was admitted to the trial bar of the Northern District of Illinois, which is in Chicago. And you have to have a certain requisite, a number of, of trials within the court there to obtain that admission. And I over time became more focused on complex cases that involved class actions, business torts and the like, and then a greater concentration over time in the space of the insurance and reinsurance and financial services industry. So that's where I started. And over time, I began to get increasingly amount of work from companies affiliated with the General Reinsurance Corporation based in Stamford, Connecticut, which is a subsidiary of the Berkshire Hathaway Group. That involved a whole wide variety of cases involving contract disputes, class actions, business torts, and the likes. So I was recruited to become general counsel there in 2003 at 39 years of age. And I made the personal calculus uh, after discussing it with my family that we would relocate to the East Coast. We had no connections out here other than professional connections. And I took the view that this was a great career opportunity for me to move from an outside lawyer to an in-house position where I would go from effectively having a very myopic practice and focusing on very detailed aspects of disputes to a very broad uh, horizon of corporate legal matters that range from regulatory to corporate governance to complex litigation to claims disputes and also the relationship that you have with senior management, the CEO, other senior executives within the company, and then the board of directors at the company. So it was really quite a leap for someone that, that had no exposure to the general counsel position. And I really enjoyed uh, the transition and it was a steep learning curve for me, but uh, a great move in, in my situation in terms of professional development. I enjoyed every step of the way and I've, I've never looked back. In terms of personal strengths, I would say that the, the things I would identify as my personal strengths uh, that I feel very good and proud about that my parents effectively taught me, first and foremost, hard work, 
I, I think that my parents always told me there was no limitation on what I could do in life if I applied myself, dedicated myself, and exercised self-discipline in preparing for whatever it is that I was doing, whether it was in athletics, academics, or otherwise. I have a huge amount of drive for self-improvement. I think that people talk a lot about formalized education. I think that the most successful people I've ever met are what I'd refer to as autodidacts, people that are life learners and are continuously curious about the world, curious about what they do, enjoy what they do, but always striving to get better as as people and individuals and as professionals. And that's just a quintessential characteristic in my view to success. Again, curious mind and thinking about things, asking questions, doing your own research. And then finally, I'd say uh, I really enjoy problem solving and the ability to help others with problems they may have and thinking through from an intellectual standpoint, the options that they have, and then making a rational choice on how to proceed. And I like people. I'm introverted in many ways. I enjoy reading. I enjoy thinking. But I also really enjoy and get energy from interactions with people, be they people on my team, clients, or other personal colleagues that I have at the social level. Fantastic. And your response is so much value. The niching, having started in a particular industry space, obviously practicing law, but being focused on insurance and the reinsurance industry. So really niching, which we hear a lot about from folks that are successful and have really selected a particular area and dove into that area, being curious and working hard. It's one of those things we hear about hard work, but being curious as well and, and really digging into the business and not only, again, the business of law, but the the industry that you've chosen. And then, of course, enjoying solving problems. Not everyone wakes up every day and says, boy, this is going to be great. I'm going to go out and help this, this organization, this person solve a business problem. And getting a lot of energy from that can be such a strength. We chat a lot on left foot about introverts and extroverts and is there an ambivert that person out there that really isn't one or the other but is in between i have to say a lot of lawyers acknowledge that that they feel that they have both qualities great start to our chat at this point i'd love to dig in we are doing a boutique series and we definitely want to hear more about your decision to create your own firm or to lead a firm with your other partners but before we go there you have that unique experience of having been an executive leader at a organization and also having been the general counsel for that organization at a point in your tenure. So you were basically on the other side of the table, purchasing and evaluating legal service providers and law firms. Can you talk about that experience and what you looked for when you were the purchaser of those professional services from those firms? I would first say that my experience, my personal experience is that lawyers in general, if I were to stereotype, are very good, again, at at kind of myopic problem solving and focusing on their particular assignment, whether it's a transactional assignment or it's a litigation assignment that may involve depositions or preparing briefs and the like. One of the things I quickly discovered when I made the transition from being a partner in a law firm to a general counsel, again, as you go from a very deep type of practice that you have to a very broad practice and you you have to get comfortable and not being an expert on all things great and small and you have to depend on others to do that job and you have to have a good skill set in terms of asking the right questions and directing those people 
What goes along with that is, in general, I would say many lawyers lack good management skills over the people that they work with. And that's not a criticism necessarily. It's just lack of having to do it on a regular basis. In many firms, they they do it annually or some firms that have a swim or sink mentality. Others have more of a hand-holding mentality, but they, they don't tend to be great managers. And I would say that I was in that category. And so one of the challenges I had when I had to transition was really learn how to manage lawyers, both internally and externally. And I, I don't think I was very good at it to begin with, but I acquired the skills and I think I developed strong management skills by virtue of my position because it's it's really a critical part of the job is managing other people again because the general counsel simply doesn't have the time or capability to do deep dives into all of the corporate legal matters that are confronting company. The transition is a very interesting aspect of a career. I, I really enjoyed it. It was extremely challenging because, again, you feel like you're swimming in a sea of legal problems and you've got to rely on a good team. The first thing that I did was really focus on developing and recruiting the right people for the team that I could depend on to get the job done and do it in a quality fashion with a high degree of responsiveness to the internal corporate client. That That's one thing that I think is really important for anyone in the general counsel position is to really have a very good, solid team that understands the business objectives of what they're trying to do. When I'm looking at outside counsel, it's I'd say the most critical factor for that is lawyers who have an appreciation for the business and what the, what the business is trying to achieve. Many outside counsel have never worked anywhere outside of their firm and they really don't appreciate or understand how the the client functions and what's important to the client because again they're working on isolated pieces of a very complex puzzle with regard to the company i'm really looking for lawyers that have some business pragmatism business counseling skills and lawyers that can take very complex matters and distill it down in a simplistic way for the key options the company faces and what are the consequences of pursuing any one or more of those options in a concise, strategic, thoughtful, and articulate manner. A lot of lawyers love the law and they're very good at it. They're experts in it and they can sit and tell you about chapter and verse, but executives tend to have many things on their plate and they need to have a high level discussion of what are the key issues about a particular transaction or a particular litigation. How does that impact the business? What are the economic consequences of those options? And then what's the best strategy to move forward? And then the business executives coupled with input and recommendations from the general counsel with reliance on outside counsel input need to make a business decision about how to proceed. So I'm really looking for lawyers that have the the gravitas, if you will, to understand how the business functions and what the business priorities are, coupled with the strong communication skills, both with the general counsel, with, with senior executives as may be appropriate. And I'm also looking for the particular lawyer. I'm really not looking at a firm and a firm's reputation. I'm looking for a specific lawyer who I know I can rely on and depend upon 
to provide that type of communication in a cost-effective manner. Great points and really show the strength of what has to take place during the evaluation process in locating that lawyer. We do hear that, that a lot of times it is not a firm that you're going to give all of your legal work to, or it's not even a practice within a firm. It is that particular lawyer and the comfort level and the trust that you require exists with that lawyer before you award them your business. Basically say you're going to work with them going forward on a particular matter. What does that look like? How do you do that evaluation? How did you determine that this is the lawyer that we're going to work with? You know, was it a trust building exercise? Did you have that lawyer present three scenarios in a way of evaluating how they would handle a particular matter? And then based on the quality of that work, was that part of the evaluation? What did that evaluation process look like? Yes. The first thing that you want to do is really do some due diligence. If you have a particular problem, you know, in my experience, we had a situation where a group of people left to go to a competitor that involves very specific issues about uh, trade secrets and how you protect them and injunctive relief that you may seek in court. We may have a very complex contract dispute. We may have highly complex personnel or employment matter. We may have a whistleblower matter. There's a whole bunch of types of, of things that can come into the office of the general counsel. And what I try to do there is the due diligence in asking colleagues who they've worked with, who they like, I particularly like knowing the lawyers that I have personal experience with and have liked. But when you have that unique situation where you don't have a specific lawyer in mind, you really want to do your due diligence. And and I find that having two or three recommendations from others that I respect about a particular lawyer and the lawyer's team is really critical. You know, the other thing that I've tried to do is I've tried to stay actively involved in a couple of different lawyer associations, if you will, one being the Federal Bar Council in New York, which has a a very high level sort of preeminent group of lawyers and and federal district court judges that participate in it. And I'm actively involved and have been on a number of panels with them. And I get to know a lot of different lawyers and what they do. And it's just a good referral network, as well as staying in close contact with general counsel, both within the insurance and reinsurance industry and outside of the industry, whether it's manufacturing or financial services because they can also be a very good resource for helping identify the best lawyers for a particular task. And the last thing I do is I I do not look at, is the firm a massive firm? Is it a blue chip firm? Is it a boutique firm? I'm really looking for the lawyer, the lawyer that I can rely on, and and that's who I'm going to hire. And it's in my own practice, that's what I'm trying to establish in terms of credibility, is the people that I've worked with, people that know me, people that respect me. That's really where you're going to get the business and and the most important, most critical factor to securing the trust for a long-term relationship with the client. And then delivering, you know, again, cost-effective services and getting good results are are just quintessential. So it's really a due diligence process, both in asking questions, and I think it'd be advisable for people in the general counsel role to have, have his or her own network, whether it's general counsel or it's outside practitioners or both, where you can continuously get to know other outside lawyers, get to see what they've done, get to see the types of work that they've handled, get the sense of their reputation in the field, 
And that's really part of the, the key exercise to identifying the best lawyer that you want to choose from. And in many cases, you may have one in particular you, you want to interview, or you may have two or three that you want to interview, have them come in and talk about how they would handle it, how they would staff it, what types of experience do they have, and spend some time trying to get a comfort level with, with that particular lawyer. Excellent. And now a word from our episode sponsor. For 10 years, Eastead has helped clients save money by streamlining e-discovery and document review processes. See why AM100 firms, Fortune 500 companies, and boutique firms love Eastet's simple pricing and customer service-centered approach on matters from IP to class actions to internal investigations. See more at e-stet.com. So let's fast forward. So now you are in the fall of 2016. You went out and created a firm. You have a number of partners that you've worked with in the past that are part of that firm have joined you on this adventure. Things are different now. So now you're going out, you're having to market your firm, market yourself, market the structure that you've created there, and hopefully the efficiencies and effectiveness that a boutique firm offers to companies that are looking to work with very strong counsel in a different business arrangement. What is your strategy? What's your strategy for growth? What is your strategy for acquiring new clients, either bringing over clients that you have a relationship with that might be using other counsel today? What's the strategy for growth? If you could get somewhat specific on how you're basically going out into the market and not only saying we're in business, but not only are we in business, but this is what makes us different. I think the first thing is quality over quantity, a skill set and experience that the types of clients and the work that we're seeking and we're getting in now. I think the economy is changing. There's these mega firms, whether it's in professional services of accounting or law or medicine, go down the list. There's there's all kinds of mega firms. And I have a, a number of close friends that work for very large firms. I've worked as a partner in a very large firm. There is, in general, in my view, a lot of people that are disillusioned and un- happy in that large firm setting because of the politics, the compensation system, the statistic-based approach, the lack of long-term tenure, what have you done for me lately? And I I don't want to criticize large firms, and some of them are very good at their models and keeping their partners happy, but there are others that just aren't ideal for the psychological makeup of the partners, if you will. And and also, I think that in some firms, there's a zero-sum game where one partner's gain is another partner's loss and carving up the pie at the end of the year. What we're really trying to do is, and, and again, you see this in the tech industry a lot, is we, we have highly qualified, highly experienced, highly skilled lawyers. We can minimize or avoid bureaucracy and inefficiency and overhead and really focus on servicing our clients and developing a team mentality about how we want to do our work. And everybody's part of the team. We have meetings where everyone in the firm is invited. We go through our marketing. We go through the work we're handling. We go through the objectives we're just trying to achieve. We want all of this to benefit the client at the end of the day. That's really what the firm is all about. If there's anything that undermines or contradicts that fundamental goal is how do we maximize delivery of cost-effective, 
effective legal support at a high quality level, then we eliminate it. And that's really the, the rule of thumb for the firm. You know, so we're not looking to become a mega firm. I'm more interested in having a boutique firm of high performing, highly energetic, motivated lawyers that enjoy coming to work every day and delivering high quality legal services for the clients. That's the basic business model. I think you see some trend in this regard in the industry where you've got some very good partners and large firms that have broken off and set up their own boutiques. To my knowledge, every time I've seen that, they tend to be quite successful at what they do, number one. And number two, they seem to be quite happy and they enjoy it. And that's really goes hand in hand with delivery of quality legal services. Because if everybody's pulling on the same ore, you know, you're going to get a better result for your client. Having been in a big firm and having been in a big company, again, many great things about the experiences I've had. What I'm really trying to do here is something that's a little more innovative, entrepreneurial, resilient, and flexible. The aim exclusively in how we can maximize the highest quality deliverable to the client in a cost-effective manner. Having been a senior executive, there's huge pressure on budgets. There's huge pressure on minimizing outside legal spend. There's been a lot of companies that have moved to the trend of insourcing legal work as much as possible. It's something that I did as a general counsel. But there are large, complex problems that come in, and some of them not so large, where you need outside independent counseling and advice, again, with people that have business experience, business acumen and can help counsel the client through that type of problem. And that's really the niche we're seeking to pursue. The C-suite types of problems, whether it's a whistleblower issue, an internal investigation, class action, or a very large exposure type of commercial litigation, that's what we're really trying to do. Again, I emphasize the quality over the quantity. I want very good, talented, experienced lawyers. Everybody in my firm has worked on both sides, meaning that they've worked both in the big law firm setting as partners, as well as senior executives within insurance or reinsurance companies, and have an appreciation for and understanding of the insurance business. And a lot of insurance companies hire lawyers and they have to spend time and money educating those lawyers about the business. One of the things we bring to the table, we have that experience and we don't need to incur expenses that the client has to undertake to educate us about how the business works. We're there, we're prepared, willing, and able to address the problem that they have head on in an efficient manner. Your experience, you know the industry, you have contacts, you can convey precedent where necessary. You know how the industry functions, as do your other partners. From a very specific perspective, is my assumption correct that the majority of the business that you have today came with yourself and the partners to the firm? Or have you gone out and acquired new clients that were known to the firm, but not part of a previous relationship? Has that occurred? to date? Yes, it's both. It's a combination of the two. We are, as all firms are, it's a highly competitive space. We're actively marketing. We've put great content on our web. We've been working hard to publish articles that anybody can go to our website and see what we've done. The critical component for us is not to just go out and tell people how good we are, but to actually demonstrate it with content. I was just on a panel yesterday for an ABA conference on, it was titled A Day at Lloyd's and talking about various 
various aspects of dispute resolution, pros and cons of arbitration versus litigation, but it's getting out and actually talking about what you've done, how you can be of service, providing that value proposition. The world changed. I know some of the very best law firms spent a lot of time and money on advertising and marketing that they didn't do 10, 15 years ago because the phone just would ring. It's competitive. And I think that the other aspect that we have at our firm is we're we're not speculating into areas that we've never handled. And I analogize this to investment managers that will call people up and talk about different products they sell. If you ask them, have you ever bought one yourself? Do you invest in that personally? A lot of them have never done that. One of the things we actually do is we talk about the things we've actually handled and that we've gained good results on and complex class actions, insurance receiverships, internal investigations, and and the like. And you can speak from a position of experience and knowledge. You don't really have to sell it. You're really just talking about the facts and what you've done. I think given the pressures that a lot of firms have today, almost every partner these days has to have a business plan. They have a lot of pressure to go out and talk about things that they really haven't necessarily handled directly and repeatedly to acquire the expertise that you need to actually get hired and and do the good work for the client. Again, I don't mean to cast any aspersions on very, very good lawyers out there. It's just a tremendous amount of pressure. When you have that, I think there's a little bit of slippage for people to get outside of their sphere of competency. And what we're really trying to do is talk about the things we have actually done, managing it in-house and managing outside counsel and controlling and managing litigation on the outside, handling these cases, whether it's a trial through the appeal, it's a settlement resolution, it's mediation, it's helping counsel a client through a difficult regulatory issue with an insurance department. We're really talking about things that we've done. And again, that's the team that we've put together and the team that will continue to expand. We will be looking for people that have experience that we can market and not people that just have good lawyers, people that have actually handled very significant and complex matters for clients. Great points. And as we look at the future and what's going on in the legal industry today, both from the client side, from the pressures that they're facing, managing their legal spend more efficiently, and then also from the provider side, really going out and finding clients where they can do a strong job, be able to effectively earn the business of those clients and additional business, either by being efficient in the way that they operate, by offering alternative fee arrangements, by being more efficient in the use of staff, using associate level talent when needed, using technology when needed. There's a lot going on. As you set up your own firm, were there certain things that you felt having been on the purchasing side beyond doing good work and having very good, strong partners, anything on the technology level or on the way that you went to market through either offering alternative fee arrangements or saying you have a particular standard in which you operate? If you can talk about either both of those two areas, technology and how that's affected your practice and or fee arrangements, if that's really been a part of your plan with your firm. We have a uh, section on our website that talks about alternative fee arrangements. And there's a number of different things that you can discuss with a client in terms of doing anything that may be inconsistent with or a variation of the standard billable hour, which in my view can create an arguable conflict of interest depending on the firm and how they apply that billable hour. At the end of the day, I think everybody wants a fair deal. The client wants a fair deal. The law firm wants a fair deal. It's really trying to figure out what that amounts to in terms of developing that economic trade at the end of the day. I think there's probably an overemphasis, in my opinion, on the specific billable rate that lawyers may charge by 
some purchasers in the field. When I was a purchaser, I, I certainly was was in tune with the rates. But it's really dependent, in my view, more on the efficiency by which the firm handles the matter, how they staff the matter, and the like. And do they have the skills and experience that effectively is embedded into that rate that you didn't pay for, that other people paid for over the years, where you're getting the benefit of that that's embedded in that billable rate. I've had firms that were expensive and through an army of lawyers on a matter, and they were firms I, I never called again. There were all kinds of names that appeared on the billing statements that I never heard of, never met, didn't know what they were doing. And then there are very high-end firms that you know have two or three very good lawyers on a complex matter, and they handle it very well, very effectively. And in the big scheme of the problem for the company, the actual fees are very small in comparison to the potential financial impact of a particular matter. So I think that you know you have to go beyond the billable hour itself in as a standalone economic component and look at the context of, of what you're getting from that lawyer. What's the experience? What's the judgment that lawyer brings, which is a critical aspect of providing legal advice, is good judgment. And so I think it's more of a complex issue. There's a lot of firms that effectively underbid one another for what I would refer to as commoditized legal work. Some would argue there's a bit of a, a game that can be played where quantity is then emphasized in terms of getting as many billable hours as possible at low rates to make up for those low rates. I'd rather hire a very good lawyer at a higher rate who can handle the matter economically and get me a very good result than try to find the lowest bidder. I analogize it to someone that needs to get brain surgery. I don't think very many people would want to go out and say, I'd really like to find the brain surgeon who's going to give me the lowest rate for the surgery. Um, that, that's just not going to happen. So when you've got a real problem, you want to get someone who has experience and judgment and efficiency because you really need to solve that problem. And the, the actual fees, again, in the context of a significant issue, pale in comparison to the reputational or financial exposure. When it comes to technology, we're a boutique firm. We're not going to throw people on massive document review. What we do is we partner up with service provider vendors that have very good quality control standards that can review documents. There's lots of good programs now that can do a lot of that work in terms of reducing the field of documents that are actually relevant. We have a piece on our website that talks about how when you've got a large document production, I think the statistic is something like 0.1% of the documents are actually key documents that are going to be used in the arbitration or the trial. You, you really need an efficient way to get through that. We'd like to do the intellectual aspect of the work and the problem solving. And that's what we built up over time in terms of our skill sets and our experience. When you look broadly, Damon, at the industry, is there anything you're seeing out there in the legal space that you really are saying, wow, that's innovative? That's something that's going to make a substantial difference in the way that lawyers practice and the way that companies look at at their legal services. A couple things. One, I really do think that the the smartest lawyers that I know and that have business savvy are really looking at developing their business acumen and knowledge. There's been discussion, for example, in law schools about teaching law students about business, accounting, finance 
and the like. And one of the common criticisms of outside lawyers, they're very good, very smart, great writers, good on their feet, good communication skills, but they just don't really understand business. And so we are very focused on that. We've really tried to build a team that has that business understanding and acumen that many of the outside practitioners just haven't had the benefit to acquire because they've not worked on the inside. That's um, one of the one of the big trends. And I think that the purchasers of legal services are going to be looking more and more to lawyers that have that business pragmatism and understanding and appreciation for things like business budgets and where the people that hire you have pressures really working with the client to make sure that every step of the way you are in sync with the client in terms of the client's core objectives with a particular assignment and that's really important lastly i would say it's an emerging issue is data analytics predictability of particular types of things that are presented to particular judges there was an article i read recently about a study done where depending on the type of motion that was presented to a specific judge there was a correlation of predictability about how that judge would rule on it. We're going to see more and more of that coming with advent of technology and the ability to look at specific decisions that are rendered by courts and judges in particular and how they're more inclined or, or less inclined to rule on specific types of things, which will then help inform the strategy that a particular lawyer and his or her client will want to pursue. All three are great points. I have to say the last one on predictive analytics, you were hearing more and more about that from the legal operations community, the folks that are in-house and they're really focused on legal operations because they are definitely, they're looking at that data. One of two last questions. Many of our listeners are starting their legal career. We have a lot of new partners, people that are just starting to take on their business development responsibilities in small firms, medium-sized firms, and the AM100, AM200. Any advice you would give those partners just starting the business developments to part of their journey? The most important thing I would say is you have to put a lot of time into it. Really know your craft. You can network having been on both sides. You really have to know what you're talking about. You have to be a master of your craft and there's no substitute to acquiring that skill and expertise than hard work, years of hard work, and actually hands-on experience. There just isn't any substitute for it. I went to school with some incredibly intelligent people. Some are very good lawyers and some I, I wouldn't hire. They're great people. Don't get me wrong. The people that I would hire are the people that have a hard work ethic. The legal practice is not one where your brains alone are going to create a good lawyer. Every single really good lawyer I know, no matter how intelligent and bright, works really hard at it. That, there's no substitute to that. And I think that's the first and foremost thing that you have to do. Valuable points, Damon. Thank you. Any last points you'd like to share before we say goodbye? No, I think I, I covered all of it. Anybody that's listening, I, I wish you the very best of luck. Damon, thank you. It's been a pleasure having you as a guest on Left Foot. My pleasure too. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Left Foot. Be sure to visit www.leftfoot.net to access show notes, sign up for our weekday series, and embrace what it means to lead with the left foot. Thank you.